Yeah, good to see Dallas's baptism from a couple of weeks ago. Well done, Dallas. Very proud of you. And uh, we're going to have some, yeah, we, we're going to have some additional baptisms today at three o'clock this afternoon out at JC Beach. So you're invited to come on out and witness those and rejoice with those. And uh, if you want to be baptized, come on out there. I'll be happy to baptize you as well. Whether it's a green flag, yellow flag, red flag, checkered flag. I don't care. We're going to get out there and uh, do the baptisms, weather permitting, as long as it's not lightning. And also to reiterate today, once a month we have a Discover Vero Christian Church class, and we, we offer that after each service, and that's today. So that's your next step. If you're looking for a church home, thinking about Vero Christian Church, and we'd love you to come on and be a part of Team Jesus here with us. Just go out those doors after the service, take a right, go to room W2, and uh, that Discover class is today, about 30-minute presentation. Let's do a little trivia. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in what? Infamy. Now, who said that? FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Because that's the day that who attacked the United States over on Pearl Harbor? The Japanese. And what made that attack so infamous? He said, a day that will live in infamy. What's so infamous about that was that it was a sneak attack, a sneak attack. The United States had not declared war. On Japan. Japan had not declared war on the United States. Japan attacked and then they formally declared war eight hours after the attack. Very sneaky. So a day that will live in infamy. And I would say, I think you'd have to agree with me, it is a great disadvantage to be at war and not know that you are at war. One side knew they were at war and the other side didn't know until after the attack. Well, likewise in Christianity, we are at war. The writers of the New Testament and our spiritual ancestors had no reticence using that military type of language. Now, we may be a little bit more comfortable thinking of uh, Christian life as a journey or a relationship, and it is those things, but it is also a war, spiritual war. And what we're doing today is kind of kicking off a new four-part sermon series. It's going to be four Sundays. We're going to address spiritual warfare. The title of it is Not Today, Satan. And today, as we lay the foundation for that, I'm just going to say two things about spiritual warfare. Two things. Number one is that war hurts. War hurts. Let me put these verses before you. The first one is from Jesus, John 16, 33. Jesus says, here on this earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. The rest of these come from the Apostle Paul. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. We're pressed on every side by troubles. We patiently endure troubles, hardships, and calamities. And we warned you that troubles would soon come. So the Bible is very candid. There's no bait and switch here. Jesus told us when you follow me, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be hardship, and it's going to hurt. And yet so often as we go through our life journey and and we do experience trouble, we find ourselves sometimes being baffled and we wonder why. Or we even feel resentment toward God. I mean, can you imagine one of those army soldiers? He's on from World War II. Remember the the video, the black and white videos of those big troop transports as they're going to the Normandy invasion? Imagine one of the soldiers who's in one of those transports and he's peeking out and he sees ahead of him those big iron crosses and the bombardments and the obstacles that they're facing and he turns to his sergeant there and he says, Sarge, 
it looks like we're heading for trouble. And the sergeant says, yes, so? He says, well, that's not what I signed up for when I signed up in the army and during a time of war. I I wasn't expecting any trouble. What's the sergeant going to say? We can't repeat it in church. All right. What do you mean that's not what you were expecting? Uh, I want to show you a movie. Uh, just, Just a video clip this morning. I like the video clips. And the kind of movies I watch are almost all animated because i got these grandkids and we're all up in each other's business. So that's, the, that's what I get to watch. And this one is from the 2018 movie, Peter Rabbit. It's an animated movie. It's really, it's a good one. Uh, but I just want to show you the opening sequence. Watch this. We'll come back and make a point. See why I love that movie? I don't know if you can hear the voiceover, but the narrator says, that's not the story we're telling. And that's not the story we're telling today either. That Christianity is all sunshine and rainbows. It's not a Disney musical. You're only as small as your dreams. It's a different kind of a story altogether. The Apostle Peter wrote, friends, when life gets difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Matt Chandler wrote, we carry an insidious prosperity gospel around in our dark little entitled hearts. We come to the throne and say, I'll do this and you'll do that. And if I do this for you, then you'll do that for me. You know what he means when he talks about the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. You've heard that terminology before. Prosperity gospel is a belief, a religious belief held by some Christians. It's really, it's been around about 150 years and it's perpetuated these days primarily by televangelists. It is the idea that God wants you happy and healthy and prosperous. And if you'll say the right things and pray the right prayers and give money to the right religious organizations, this will be the outcomes in your life, prosperity. Now, I have nothing against prosperity or against health. Many of us as American Christians are relatively prosperous in this world, and some of us enjoy health. But one of the things I'm trying to emphasize today as we lay this foundation is that there are two testaments in the Bible, right? The Bible is divided into halves. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. And a testament or a covenant is an agreement between God and His people. So the Old Testament was God's agreement between Him and the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites. And the blessings of that Old Covenant were primarily physical and material. For instance, if you're faithful to God and obedient, you would get land, actual land, real estate, the land of Canaan. And your crops would be robust. And your flocks and your herds would propagate. So physical, material blessings. 
there's a transition that takes place from the Old Testament to the New Testament or the New Covenant, the agreement between God and Christians. And that transition, one of them, is from material physical blessings and outcomes to spiritual blessings. The primary thrust of the New Testament is not material and it's not physical, it is spiritual. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3.13 Paul starts off, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes on to list these, forgiveness of sin, redemption, the Holy Spirit, and so on. Now there is a life of blue skies and rainbows and songs and where there's no suffering or pain. That's to come. That's a world to come. That's not this world right here. And there's no bait and switch in the Bible. The Bible's been very clear on this. And by the way, we should rejoice in that. As New Testament Christians, we do not want to trade our spiritual blessings and go back to the lesser covenant where it was just physical and temporary. And yet Jesus says, John 16, here on this earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Now that verse is not one that a lot of us have on our refrigerator. That's not a life verse for a lot of Christians. In this life you'll have many trials and sorrows. In his book, God on Mute, Peter Grieg writes about a friend of his named Mike and his wife Joe. I'm going to read this excerpt. He writes, their daughter was born with a profound physical disability. In three years, her little body has endured four major operations. The leaders of their church had a disagreement that gradually led to the congregation falling apart. Mike's Hips began aching, and at the age of 32, he was diagnosed with degenerative arthritis. And his job is, a, is an outdoor leader of excursions and, and canoeing and hiking, so that's going to impact their income. In addition to that, Mike and Joe were desperate to relocate and had been praying like crazy without success for their house to sell. And so Peter, this, this author, Peter Greg asked him, how on earth do you cope with it? How do you make sense of it all? Where does it leave you and God? Mike answered, well, I used to think that I had some kind of divine right to happiness. These days, I find it easier to just accept that life's tough than to feel sort of hard done as if I've been robbed. Why blame God for stuff that's just the reality of life on a messed up planet? We have all kinds of good stuff, but I reckon that for most people, sooner or later, just getting out of bed in the morning becomes unbelievably difficult. When things are sort of ticking along nicely in life, as they sometimes do, you really need to treasure those times because they're not normal. C.S. Lewis has written a great book on suffering called The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. He writes, lay down this book and reflect for five minutes on the fact that all the great religions were first preached and long practiced in a world without anesthetics. Instead of coming to God when bad things happen to us and say, why God, why me? Why did you allow this to happen to me? Why don't we go to God in times of great blessing and ask God, why me? Why are you blessing me? What have I done to deserve these blessings? Imagine two sets of people that live in a, a, a large, grand, yet dilapidated building. The first set anticipated this was a five-star hotel. And the second set anticipated that it was a prison. And each morning, the first set wake up, and they're disappointed. 
and the second set wake up and they're grateful and thankful that things are a whole lot better than they thought they were going to be that day. War hurts. I've never heard anybody say this from the pulpit. I've never said this so directly, but we're going to get hurt in life. You're going to hurt. But that doesn't mean that God's not on the job. We're in spiritual warfare. And the second thing I want to say about our spiritual war today is that in war, there are enemy combatants. War has enemy combatants. 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil. Romans 8.7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. James 4.4, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. There are three primary enemies of the Christian in our spiritual warfare. They are the devil, the flesh, and the world. Almost like counterparts to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the devil, the flesh, and the world. They are our enemies. And the primary weapon of the devil is the lie. And it's not that we tell lies, but that we believe them, internalize them, and act upon them. John Mark Comer, in his book, Live No Lies, formulates it like this. Deceptive ideas from the devil that play to disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. Centuries ago, Sun Tzu wrote a book entitled The Art of What? Yeah, I thought somebody was going to say The Art of the Deal. That's a different author. Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War. Now, I read The Art of War, and I will tell you that 90% of it went right over my head. I didn't know what he was talking about. But the one line that I remember and took away is the one line that most people take away. Sun Tzu and The Art of War said, know your who. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. And, and, and like I said, we're kind of setting up this series. So in the next three weeks, I want to devote one sermon each to our enemy, the devil, our enemy, the flesh, and our enemy, the world, and the strategies, the strategies by which we have victory over those. But again, in his book, John Mark Comer identifies three what he calls tectonic shifts that have happened in Western culture, including ours in America. They are, number one, the shift from the majority to the minority. The church is what sociologists call a cognitive minority. Our worldview, our value system, practices, and social norms are at sharp odds with those of our host culture. We face constant pressure to assimilate and follow the crowd. Maybe you can identify with that. Shift number two, from a place of honor to a place of shame. Once the church held a place of honor in the wider culture, now the church is seen as part of the problem and not the solution. With the radical moral reversal around human sexuality, gender, and the life of the unborn, we now have the moral low ground in many people's eyes. Jesus' vision of human sexuality is perceived as immoral by a large swath of the population. And the third shift, from widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. A growing number of our secular friends and neighbors think of us not just as weird, but as dangerous. 
as a threat to secularism's alternative vision of human flourishing. It's not physical persecution, not here in America, it is in other countries. But there's a kind of cultural and social and emotional persecution that we live under and carry the weight of. The writers of Scripture had an expression for this kind of a cultural experience. They called it exile. The Apostle Peter's first letter, he wrote, to the exiles, meaning the Christians, to the exiles living in Babylon. Walter Brueggemann defined exile as the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. The Barna Group has identified our cultural generation as digital Babylon, living in digital Babylon. So Stonewall Jackson was a general in the Civil War. And he got his nickname Stonewall during the, battle, the first battle of Bull Run when he was standing under withering fire, but he refused to retreat. And someone said, look, there's Jackson standing like a stone wall. So that nickname stuck, Stonewall Jackson. And his brigade was known as the Stonewall Brigade. Asked about his courage, he said this, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God knows the time of my death. I don't concern myself about that but to be always ready no matter where it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Now, Stonewall Jackson was killed. Now, we probably have a Civil War buff or two here. Anybody know how Stonewall Jackson died? He was shot by who? By his own troops. That's right. He was coming back at night, returning to his camp. There was some confusion over the passwords where you identify yourself. And his own troops shot him, and he died as a result of those injuries. One of my biggest takeaways this morning, I hope, is we want to make sure that we're not spending any energy or time or resources or ammunition shooting at the, at the wrong enemy, shooting at our leader, our general, God. He's our only ally in the spiritual battle. I'm reading a book right now called Extreme Ownership. It was written by two Navy SEALs. And they write about the leadership ethic amongst the SEALs. And the primary core of their leadership ethic is in that title, Extreme Ownership. They define it this way. On any team, in any organization, in any family, really, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There's no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. That's what they mean by extreme ownership. I was thinking about this in relationship to God. So in the Garden of Eden, we have Adam and Eve and the devil, the enemy, comes to them. His primary weapon is the lie, so he tells them a lie. You're not going to die. God knows when you eat that fruit, you're going to be just like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. That was the lie. They internalized that. It appealed to their distorted desires to be like God. So they ate the fruit. And as a result, the world, the creation, the world became curse, suffering, and death enters into the world. They totally caved. They did that. And by the way, they were our representatives. They represented us well. If we'd been there, we would have done the same thing. We did that. That's the result of our sin, our mistake. But God said, well, I'm not going to let that stand. 
I'm not going to let them stay dead. I'm not giving up and surrendering the world that I created. And he, he came up with a plan. His plan was to send his own innocent son into the world to die in our place, mankind's place, so that he could overcome death and reverse the effects of the curse on the world through resurrection. It's all through resurrection. Who took ownership? God took ownership of our mistakes. You talk about extreme ownership. God owned our sin, literally owned our sin, and took upon himself the punishment and the wrath for that sin and came up with the plan by which we could win. All I'm saying right here, I know that suffering is hard and death is hard and death is our great enemy. But God is the only one who's done anything about these problems. He's the only one who's done anything about suffering and pain and loss and death. That's our leader. That's our God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah appeared to face disaster. They learned of an impending invasion from foreign armies. They cried out to God. The Spirit of God came upon a Levite man by the name of Jehaziel. This is the message that came through him. 2 Chronicles 20:15. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow march out against them, take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. As the Bible says in the New Testament, if God is with you, who can be against you? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have our victory through God. They marched out that day, and Jehoshaphat put the chorus out in front of the soldiers, and they were singing praises and praying to God, and God went to work, and their enemy began to fight against each other, and the people of Judah won the battle that day. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we see the battle, we see the mountain, we see the shadow, but you see the victory. We affirm today that the battle belongs to you. You are for us. Who can be against us? You are our fortress, and nothing can stand against your power. We pray that we will be strong in your strength and in your mighty power, and having done everything, that we will stand. Stand like a stone wall. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.